0: Lord, we
1: come before you this morning with joyous hearts, thankful hearts. Lord, the song that we just finished really emphasized the depth of your, your unconditional love for us. Lord, the song was sung by angels to shepherds, lowly shepherds. The proclamation of your son's birth to the lowest of the low. And Father, and your son was born in the lowest of low, a manger in a barn among cattle that hasn't been cleaned up. Father, for one purpose, and that is to come for him to live and to die on our behalf, a lowly people, all of us in this room, who are most unworthy to raise our voices in praise to you, a holy God. Father, for this we can rest, that we can come to you through Christ, that we can be pure and holy in your eyes, regardless of the sin we have uh, practiced and wallowed in, even all our lives. Lord, forgiveness is immediate through Christ if we but confess and turn to him and acknowledge him as Lord and Savior. For there is no other name given under heaven by which men must be saved than the Lord Jesus Christ. So, Father, we come before you with joy and we do ask again, renew our hearts. Father, forgive our sin. Father, may the joy of Christ be very evident in the light of our countenance as we uh, in, within our families, within our community, and Father uh, before your throne. So Father, um, may our word, the words of our mouths and the meditation of our heart this day be acceptable in thy sight, O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Paul Morgan, will you come and read for us?
2: Our scripture passage for this morning is from Psalm 34, the psalm written by David when he was running for his life from Saul who wanted to kill him. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him, and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord
3: encamps
2: around those who fear him, and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. and do good seek peace and pursue it the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry may the Lord bless the reading of this word we invite the Cummins family up
3: to light our third advent candle Isaiah 49.8 Thus says the Lord, In a time of favor I have answered you. In a day of salvation I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to to apportion the desolate heritages, saying to the prisoners, Come out. For those who are in darkness appear. They shall feed along the ways. On all bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst. Neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them, and by springs of water will guide them. And I will make all my mountains a road, and my highways shall be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar, and behold, these from the north and from the west, and these from the land of Syene. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his his afflicted.
4: seated.
0: Would you join us in prayer today this morning for Christmas and Merry Christmas to you all. Lord Jesus, Lord Father, Holy Spirit, would you anoint this time that we have together I pray that more grace would be given today, more peace today, more love today, more joy today, Lord God, that we would exalt you in all that we do, that would give you the glory for all that you do, for the good, for the bad, for the things you take away and the things that you give. Lord, you are a wonderful God. I pray for those who are going places this this uh, winter, this Christmas time, spend time with their family, be with Paul, Lord God, as he goes visit Amen, Mary. And be with uh, Peter as he speaks your word. Set him aside that your word might come forth. Not just to give us new thoughts, but conviction of your spirit. to Do what's right in your eyes. May you be glorified today, Lord Jesus. Amen.
4: Thank you, Ernest, for your prayer this morning, Um, It's appropriate preparation for our time in the Word, and I would like to accept that as such and move right into today's passage. We will be studying today in Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 12 in your pew Bibles, that's on page 1166, and I'd like to start today by by reading our passage, starting in Philippians chapter 3, verse 12. with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. We have been learning through Paul's letter to the Philippian church, Uh, We started back in October with an introduction of the relationship between Paul and the Philippians and how that came about, and we, in October, worked through chapter one, and then in November, worked our way through chapter two, and here we are in December, and we are in chapter three, and it's been really good to take each small passage and look at what it says and what it means and how we can apply that to ourselves. Uh, But it's also important to, every so often, back up and make sure we remember the context of what we're reading, that this is a portion of a letter, and the whole letter was written from someone to someone in a specific set of circumstances, and in order to really understand and appreciate what's being taught, we need to keep that big picture view. We don't want to just take one little part of the letter and say, that's my favorite, that's what I'm going with, right? It's a whole piece. We want the context as well. So we're going to take a moment this morning to kind of back up and look at What was Paul's situation with Philippians? What's the the circumstances or the purpose for this letter? And Paul's situation, as we understand it, is that he was in prison. Uh, And from what we understand in this letter, the way he describes the the level of freedom that he had, uh, it's probably the prison imprisonment when he was on house arrest. So he had a guard with him. He couldn't go places. But people could come and go to him, and he could minister to them or receive gift from them, preach the word to whoever would come to his house. That's the kind of imprisonment. he was in. Uh, We also know that all of the missionary work that we have recorded in the book of Acts with Paul, that's all already happened. This letter is being written after those missionary journeys, and that he and Silas were the apostles that brought the gospel to Philippi. Now, Philippi was a Roman colony. It was kind of out on the outskirts there, but politically, they were Roman citizens, and they were very proud of that. Uh, It might explain why there weren't enough Jews there for a synagogue. When Paul and Silas met with them, they just kind of met down by the river. You needed a quorum of a certain number of Jewish men in order to found a synagogue is my understanding. And so there, that wasn't the culture there. Uh, all of the people that we hear about, Lydia, the dealer in purple cloth who was converted there, or the jailer and his family after the earthquake they were converted, everything that we see in that context would indicate they were Greek. So that might explain why in the whole book of Philippians, Paul never references the Old Testament. Well, this is not because Paul doesn't think the Old Testament is valuable anymore, right? It's because he knows his audience. They're not Jews. They're not people who have a history with that. So that's not the direction from which he's going to come as he ministers to them. The specific circumstance, and we don't we don't have historical documents on this. We're just reading from the text and understanding. But the specific circumstance going on between them is that when Paul's arrested, he needs financial support. He needs people to... to him because it's not like jails today where you get all your meals, right? So the Philippians found out that he was in need, and they had sent Epaphroditus, a young man, with gifts that they had collected for him to support him, as they had been in the habit of doing throughout his ministry. And Epaphroditus came with those gifts. They were a blessing to Paul in his circumstance, and then Epaphroditus got sick. And the Philippians heard that he got sick, but then he got better, and they haven't necessarily heard yet that he got better. So Paul is now sending Epaphroditus back to his home church in Philippi. And if you're sending him back, right, postage is already paid. You might as well send a letter with him. Because Paul's the letter writer, right? So he's going to send this letter. And the primary purpose of this letter is a thank you. Note. He's saying, thank you. Thank you for sending Epaphroditus, for sending your gifts, for providing for me as you have always provided for me in my ministry. He also wants to tell them about his situation because they sent the gift in concern. So he wants to explain to them what's going on, as well as encourage them, because when Epaphroditus came, he found out about their situation and the persecutions that they were undergoing. So he wants to encourage them to stand firm and to rejoice. And then he wants to exhort them to humility and unity. And we see these themes coming up throughout the book, rejoice, unity, rejoice, and unity that he's emphasizing to their church in the middle of their circumstances. Lastly, he wants to commend Epaphroditus to them, as well as Timothy, who he hopes to send, and to warn them against false teachings. And we know those were the purposes of the letter because that's what's in the letter. So that's how we, that's how we come up with this kind of exodus. I know it's really complicated. But it's important to have as a big picture because you need to know what it is you're reading about. So where are we at this point in chapter three? Well, he opens with thanksgiving and prayer in his letter, and he had that affectionate, that emotional introduction that that Paul Morgan told us characterizes this book, this tender letter. It distinguishes it from some of Paul's other New Testament letters. And he updated them on his imprisonment primarily to give them perspective, that his imprisonment was advancing the gospel. It was not a burial. It wasn't something that happened that God couldn't control and was getting in the way, that it was being used. And he tells them that in part because he's exhorting them to stand firm in their persecution and to have a similar perspective on what's happening to them in the advancement of the good news. He models or tells them to model their attitude after Christ. That's going to be the key is that humble obedience is what needs to characterize who they are. And and he updates them on his plans. He says, I'm sending Epaphroditus to you now, and I'm going to send Timothy as soon as I kind of get an idea of how things are going for me here. So he commends Timothy to him, and I'm going to come as soon as I can, God willing. That's his plan for them. And last week we got to the false teachings. So he addressed last week the false teaching of by apparently there was a group of people who were emphasizing righteousness through the law. And their, their key point was circumcision. We have to do these things so that we will be good. And and Paul says, none of that. Don't put any confidence in the flesh. If anybody had a reason to, I did. I was doing awesome with acts of good stuff. And it's it's rubbish, he says. It's nothing. In verses seven through nine, he tells them, I have given up everything. I've put all that was to my credit behind me. I've called it garbage. Because I want a righteousness that comes not through the law, but through faith in Christ. And then he says in verse 10, and I'm going to pick this up because it's the setting for the passage we're studying today, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, become like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So he has set this lofty goal before them and told them everything he's given up to do this thing. And then he tells them in verse 12, not that I've already obtained all this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. And after explaining this lofty goal, the first thing Paul communicates is that in our passage today, I have not yet arrived. I am on a journey. I'm not there yet. And and there's a possibility that when he was describing that lofty goal, that the Philippians might get the wrong impression that Paul was saying, I gave up all this and I am now here. And he's not here. He's pushing towards there, but he's not there. And he wants them to get that. He has not arrived. Do you feel that? Okay. I, I navigate sometimes with uh, like the, the GPS on your phone or whatever, and it talks to you while you're driving, and it says, in 400 feet, turn left, turn right, go straight. And then you pull into the parking lot, and the and the little lady's voice says, you have arrived. <laughs> and I chuckle at that every time, right? Because I'm like, oh, wouldn't that be nice? I have not arrived. I have not arrived in parenting. I have not arrived in patience. I have not arrived in prayer. I have not arrived in faithfulness. I have not arrived in so many areas. It's a process. And I recognize that I have not yet arrived, whatever Google wants to tell me. And it's important for us to remember as Christians that we have not yet been made perfect because that's going to combat some of the lies that Satan brings to us. You know, if you were really a Christian, you wouldn't struggle with that. A Christian, someone whose life is surrendered to Christ, your life is clearly not surrendered to Christ. No, that's a lie. We have not yet been made perfect. We were promised struggle here Honor. You know, they're not a very good Christian if they XYZ or if they don't XYZ. You know, pick your judgment, right? No, they are in a process. It's like Dan has been telling us, what Paul Tripp's been telling us. We live between the already and the not yet. We have already been justified and forgiven. We have not yet been glorified as we will be at the resurrection. We live in between in the process of sanctification, in the process of of being made like Christ. And Satan can use that notion that Christians are finished products and he can drive a wedge between you and God. He can drive a wedge between you and each other. And he can drive a wedge between us and the people who need the good news of Christ. And we need not to contribute to the notion that we are finished products. Paul was not, we are not. It's the humility, right? That's the key that he was emphasizing, remember, when he was saying the attitude of Christ? That's where we need to be. But this truth that we have not yet been made perfect, we need to use this truth faithfully as well. The first time I was introduced to this was as a child. There was an old song that we would sing in church, uh, for the kids anyway, uh, called, maybe you know it, He's still working on me to make me what I ought to be. It took him just a week to make the moon and the stars, the sun and the earth and Jupiter and Mars, how loving and patient he must be. He's still working on me. And that was the first time I encountered this concept of like, I'm a work in progress. And that is the truth I need to hold to. But it was curious to me that in the verse, it says, there really ought to be a sign upon my heart. Don't judge him now. There's an unfinished part. And it was curious to me because the first thing we did with that truth that I'm imperfect is give it to someone else who's looking at me. Or have you you ever heard the phrase, please be patient. God's not finished with me yet, right? On a poster with a little kitten all rolled up in yarn or something. Or a cross stitch or a button or a t-shirt. Right? Please be patient. God's not finished with me yet. What do we do with our imperfection? We give that message to other people and say, when you're looking at me, you need to understand I'm not finished yet. Why do we want to give that message to other people? Because it's possible that we're really not interested in changing then it's a whole lot easier if we can just have an excuse for other people of why we're doing the stupid things we're doing, okay? That that when we say nobody's perfect, we really mean I don't want to work any harder than this, okay? That is not Paul's message. That is not what Paul is telling them. Listen to the athletic imagery he uses after every time he states that he's not perfect. Not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That is the imagery of a race. That is exerting all his energy towards this one goal. It echoes his statements before that he has rid himself of all the old stuff that had no value for the sake of having Christ, for the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus. I have not reached the goal, but I am pressing, I am pursuing it with a single-minded purpose. It's interesting when you look at King David's admonition that Paul read to us in Psalm 34, that we are to seek peace and let it fall gracefully upon you if it chooses. No, you are to seek peace and pursue it, okay? Now, that pursuing and peace, we have a hard time holding those two at the same time, but that's what Paul's talking about here. There's a single-minded pursuit of Christ-likeness that we are called to that should characterize us, that we haven't reached the goal, but what per- we are pursuing it with purpose. Now, we have to be careful here as well because it's possible that Christ-likeness starts to fade and get forgotten, and straining and pursuing becomes the goal, right? That the Christian life is straining and pursuing. Well, be careful, right? Pursuing what? Are we pursuing good works? Preferably visible good works that other people can see and pat us on the back for, right? Work really hard so that you have a certain image. Is that what we're going for? Or is it, is it a ministry? Work really hard so that there's a successful ministry that I'm attached to? No. We are straining to know and obey Christ. And he's going to ask you to do things that have high visibility, low visibility, no visibility. It doesn't matter. You are straining to to, to have a heart that is obedient to him in service to others. And we have set all the rest of that stuff aside. And we need to be careful also in how we are trying. This journey is a journey about transformation of the heart. It's not about figuring it out. It's about surrendering. It's not about you having the energy and the determination to do it right. And that's a real danger, particularly in the Western Christian church. I can remember back in 1990-something, I was reading a book by someone and remember it very clearly. (laughs) The part I remember clearly is he was talking about what should the church look like and and what does the church historically, has it looked like, and what does the church look like right now? And he said, look around at the people in your church. What kind of adjectives are we using? It is possible that when you look around your church, you see people, here were the two adjectives, that are busy and tired. And that just struck me, because particularly in the 90s where I was, that was it. There were a lot of us, and we were busy, and we were tired, and it didn't look like the peace and joy of Christ. There was something missing. There was something that we had, had missed and needed to get back to. So, so it's not just about striving. It's about striving well. I, lo- I love that Paul used the imagery of a race, because there was a, a point in my life when I was recruited at the high school where I was teaching— to help coach the cross-country team, uh, cross-country runners. And I i have never run a race in my life. I didn't do track. I didn't do cross-country. I, like, you know, like, take a jog, get in shape. I get that. But I didn't know anything about racing. And they were recruiting me to help coach on the team. Uh, and and this was an elite cross-country team, okay? This, they are nationally ranked. These are elite runners. And they are coaches who know what they are doing. They, the program had become so big that they had a lot of newbies coming on. And so they needed more bodies in charge. So really, they just wanted to train me to train the people who knew nothing, right? So if I can learn one step ahead of them, we were fine. But but it was interesting to me that they called me to come coach because I'm like, sure, I'll come help. But I mean, it's cross country, What's to coach, right? Run as hard as you can, as long as you can and see what happens. <laughs> right? That, isn't that what a race is? I was so wrong, okay? And I get in there and I start watching these elite coaches teaching these elite runners. And it turns out, If you want to run a race and run a race well, you have to know how to do it. See, a cross-country is a team of runners, and that team of runners is racing against another team, and they've studied beforehand, and they know where each of those runners needs to finish in order to win the race. So every one of those runners has a place where they need to be. And when you run a race, it's broken up into stages. Okay, there's the start, right? When the gun goes off, and there's the first 600 meters, and at the start... You can fall off the horse both ways. You can take off at a dead sprint in those first 600 meters. And they would tell the kids, you can't win the race in the first 600 meters, but you can lose it. Because if you go running out there at a dead sprint, you're not going to be able to put what you need to put into the rest of the race to finish where you need to finish, where your team needs you to finish. But the other danger is you're so afraid of overrunning that you just sort of hang back. And after the first 600 meters, everybody settles into the pace more or less that they're going to be running for the first portion of the race. And you might be sitting in 40th, 41st, 42nd place, and you needed to be running against the people in 21st, 22nd, 23rd place. So you have to go out, and they would coach the kids. You need to be swift and under control. And after 600 meters, you need to be with the people that you need to be racing because now we're in the first half of the race. And in the first half of the race, you have a first half race pace. It's a pace that is sustainable past the finish line. You are keeping yourself in a position to race because this blew my mind. The race hasn't started yet. The race starts at the halfway mark. And we know we and we knew where it was. We had it measured out. There was a coach there taking positions at the halfway mark. You now hit the racer's half. And it was awesome to watch the elite runners, right? Cuz some Joe from another race right that doesn't know what they're doing is run alongside I'm like I'm right next to this kid I'm right next to you like it's not the racer's half yeah and when the racer's half comes the runner who knows what they're doing hits this next gear and they go into fourth gear and they start pushing themselves into oxygen debt in the second half because this is a the race they're doing it right and then there's that final 600 meters they call it the kick and there are stages of the kick and you have cues and this is where you're leaving it all on the line and your mind's not going to be able to tell your legs to run faster but you need to figure out what your cue is. It might be the arms. You're going to pump your arms to make them go. You're going to breathe differently, right? And then, and you leave everything on the line so that when you get to the goal, you're where your team needs you to be. And I just, right? Oh, you just tried really hard. No, you try well. You run wisely and you practice so that you're able to put the things into the places that you need. But the thing that all four of those stages of the race had in common is your goal is always the finish line. Your goal is always the good race and finishing it. If you have an awesome start and then you hear the ice cream truck and take a right, it's all worthless, right? You've got to keep your head on the goal the whole time if you're going to run a good race. And I think that's true for us as well. That It's, it's not just about doing as much as you can wherever you are, right? It's about living well. It's about living wisely, but it's always about having the goal in mind. And Paul offers us some keys to him as he is working towards this goal. Notice in verse 12, he uses the word because. Anytime he uses because, he's giving you a motivation, a reason, right? He says, I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. That his motivation for doing anything comes out of what God has done for him. That we love because God first loved us. Not because someone told us we should. Not because we have a list that we're trying to check off. It's coming out of a relationship. Now, the hard part is I just gave you a bullet point about a relationship, right? So so I need to check off. My motivation comes from Christ. Check. (laughs) No, right? It's a relationship. Right, it's complicated. But but have you seen people's motivation change from a relationship? Do you remember that stage in life where people were finding someone, and 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 you like have your friends, you're like, whoa, something just changed here. Yeah, right. Suddenly they have this relational motivation that that changes who they are and how they work. That's what we're going for. So as we seek to let God be our relationship, it needs to be more than what someone told you God did for you. Well, someone said God sacrificed to me. Oh, I should probably write him a thank you note, right? No, like you need to meet Christ himself. You need to meet God himself. And and you need to do whatever it takes to make that more real. Sit down with someone, I don't know, who's been to the Holy Land and, and look at their pictures and listen to them talk about the places they walked and have that moment and say, whoa, this really happened. This is really, God really did this for me. Take time with God personally, just you and him And let that relationship become real. And I'm not telling you what emotional level it needs to attain, okay? Every one of us in all of our relationships have different levels of emotiveness. That is absolutely normal. It is going to look different for us. But it's personal. It's a relationship that needs to motivate us to live the way God has called us to live. The second key Paul gives us is forgetting what is behind. He says, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind. Well, what lies behind? Our old way of thinking, our old values, our old motivations that used to drive us before we found out the problem with them, the problem we had that Christ solved for us, our our old sins, the burden of that knowledge, that oh man, this is no good. I I have sinned against God and I can't fix it. That's behind us if we've been forgiven and if we've accepted the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, that the burden of your sins has rolled it's behind you now. It's not what you focus on. The, the things that were of earthly value, that's all behind us. I'm going to forget whatever my culture says to value, whatever my friends and family say to value. If it's not what Christ says to value, it's behind me now. That's not what is motivating me because what he values is people and what he values is an obedience to him that glorifies him and how we treat others. So we're forgetting what lies behind so that we can strain forward. In verse 13, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal. What's the goal? For the prize. What's the prize? Of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And that upward call, upward is the idea of above us or heavenly or divine. And that call is like a calling on your life. It's a way of living. So a way of living. So there's this divine way of living that's the prize, that's the goal, that's what we are pushing towards, that I'm not living for my old self, I'm focusing now on knowing Christ and on being formed in to the image of Christ, that I can become someone who forgives the way that Jesus forgives, who sacrifices the way that Jesus sacrifices, who loves, who sees others and their needs the way God does, seeing them as creatures that he created and who lives in order to bring glory to God Not myself. Whew, that's a high calling. I don't know if you feel the the burden of that, but but there's gonna be a battle involved if you're pushing that direction. Okay, and so and I want you to understand that there's this there's this journey we're working through, first to recognize the truth that God has given us, second, to aspire to that calling that He has put in us, and third, to persevere in that calling. And at every point in that, there's going to be a battle. Satan does not want you to connect with the truth that God has given us in the good news. And if you do connect with it, he does not want you to aspire to the calling of Christ-like living. And if you do aspire to it, he does not want you to persevere in it. Ah, you tried that. It didn't work out. Let's do something else. Okay? That's why Paul is encouraging them to stand firm, because there's going to be a battle if we're headed this direction, because there's a real enemy working against us. But but he communicates to us that it's really, it's not optional. In verse 15, let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. So this goal, this prize, this calling that we're, that we're straining towards, is not for the Pauls, right? The missionaries, the type A's. This is for all mature Christians. We should all be aspiring to the, the Christ-like living that God has called us to. And, and he wants us to be united in it. He says, if, if in anything you think otherwise, all right, so, the if anything, I believe, means he's referring to other things besides this. So, there are a lot of other things out there that you might think differently about. And on all of those things that you think differently, I, Paul, I'm gonna tell you how it goes. No. God will clear it up, okay? But let us let us be united in this. Let us let us take this truth that we've been given and actually work together towards it. And he tells them to work together again in verse 17. He says, join, brothers, join that is, joined together with each other in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. It's a high calling. There's going to be discouragement within it. And he wants them to know you have somewhere to look as you are gathering together to live this way. Look at, look at me as I'm trying to do this. Look at other people who are trying to do this with the example that we've set for you to do this and take encouragement from that example. I know God's often used uh, people in church as as a model for me. Uh, my my perspective on cross country running was very similar to my perspective on Christianity at points growing up, and and coming from kind of a collegiate urban ministry setting, I developed a pattern of well, you put everything into it every time, all you have, because if you don't, then you're not really X Y Z, right? Fill in the lie. But but that led to this this roller coaster of emotional burnout that, that made me not really the servant that God wanted me to be. So when God sees that in me and doesn't want that for me, you know what he does? He gives me an example, right? And he, and he brings me to Eatonville and he, he puts me under Dan Hoffman. And I look at Dan and, and others around here and, and I look at their long-term patient faithfulness and I see the blessing that is to people. And I think, oh, there's a different way to do this, to pursue this that really does honor God. And I'm encouraged by their example to become more like Christ. I can remember also the first time I went overseas and I, and I met Christians whose professions meant very little to their identity. They were very confused by these Americans who would say, what do you do? And by that mean, what's your job? Like they, they just didn't get, they were alive to be a part of the church of God, right? That was their identity. And I was challenging to me. Their example challenged me then to become more like Christ in how I define myself. Now, we don't worship our brothers and sisters in Christ. We don't pick some leader and put him up on a pedestal and we're his followers, no. But we can be encouraged as we live alongside others who are being faithful to the call of Christ by looking at their example and following Christ with them. Now, it's important to choose who you look at carefully, because Paul says there are other examples as well. In verse 18, he says, for, and again, connecting reasoning back to verse 17, for many of whom I have told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Now, that is in stark contrast to the calling that he just described when he describes enemies of Christ. Can you can you picture a life, what it would look like to be an enemy of Christ in that your end is destruction? You're not living in a way that is viable long-term, that, that your God is your stomach, that is, you're worshiping your appetite. If you, if you want it, you can have it. People who would glory in shameful things, whose minds are set, on the things of this earth, that that's what leads and guides them. And that is a destructive way to live. Now, as I walk you through Paul's description there, I want you to guard your heart as well, because there's a good chance, if you live in America, that you've adopted a little bit of American cultural thinking, and when you start thinking about enemies, and I go through that list, you push into us and them mode, right? Those people. And, And we tend to get this... This kind of picture of a nameless group of enemies that are worthy of disdain, okay? We need to combat that cultural tendency. We are actively being pushed into us and them every day in the country where we live, because if you can get pushed into a corner, then they can control you based on what you're opposed to. And as Christians, we have strong feelings about what's right and wrong. So frankly, it's kind of easy to push us into a corner sometimes. And we need to combat that because that is not how Christ viewed his enemies. He explicitly said, We're going to love your enemies. And he modeled it, okay? He forgave people while they were killing him. Like, this is Christ's response to people who are in opposition to him. It wasn't Paul's response either. Did you hear his heart when we read that? And now tell you, even with tears, and everything in the context would indicate those are tears of grief, that he's grieved by the fact that there are people whose lives are being destroyed by lies apart from Christ. So so our response needs to be prayer, not just prayer for someone who's engaged in something that's destructive, prayer for our heart as well. Because if you're like me, my heart doesn't naturally go where Christ and Paul's heart were to someone that I consider to be an enemy. So we need to pray for our own hearts. The picture is of, of a Christian who has a, a, a child or a relative and, the, and they value and love them. And so when there's something destructive happening in their life, the that the response is compassion. The response is to, to love that person because I value them regardless of where they are in their journey with Christ. We recognize how destructive that way of life is and we have compassion on anyone who's enslaved by it. Uh, it's also possible when you go through that list, some of that might apply to you too. I mean, not that your destiny is destruction, okay? I think we have that one fairly well meted out in the Bible, but but are there times when your God is your belly when when what you desire is what determines how you act. I, I can I can remember spring of last year. Okay, small moment. Uh, I'm my wife's headed out in the morning. I'm gonna be home. She glances up at the top of the fridge and says, "It looks like there's enough rhubarb crisp for dessert tonight." Okay, those of you who have been married 15 years or more, you can translate that statement. Yes. The translation goes roughly something like this. Hey, I'm leaving you for seven hours with half a pan of rhubarb crisp and a quart of ice cream. Don't do anything stupid. Now, why does she have to say that to me? Because there are times when my God is literally my stomach. And if I see it and I like it, I take it. Okay, and it's somewhat humorous when it's rhubarb crisp, but when it's how I treat other people, when it's things that are addictive and destructive, it's not so funny. That we can recognize in ourselves, that we have not yet been made perfect. And there are times when when we are acting as enemies of Christ, despite our adoption in him. And that should help us to have compassion on anyone in any situation when we recognize that in ourselves. Now, it's also worth noting, this is the second false doctrine that Paul has addressed. Last week, we talked about his uh, opposition to, if you want the big word, the Judaizers or the legalists who are saying put confidence in the flesh. Now, in that case, he was not terribly compassionate and he called them dogs and mutilators of the flesh and very similar to Christ's model, who Paul gets angry at? It's religious people that think they have it all together and then are leading people away from God. Okay? That there is zero tolerance for that in the gospel. So, so that's to say put confidence in the flesh. Now we have the antinomians or the libertines. The idea is it's liberty, right? It, whatever you do is no big deal. And Paul is saying, do not put confidence in doing all the right things and do not go do whatever you want. But basically you can fall off both sides of the horse. So, so what's Paul's answer? It's the same thing it's been all letter, right? In verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await We're looking for, we're focused on a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. That our focus needs to be on Christ, not on us and the law, not on us and our desires, but on Christ. And our citizenship, that is, our identity, is not Roman, it's not American it's heavenly, it's spiritual, that our identity, our citizenship comes from the kingdom of God and that we are being transformed here on earth into the image of Christ and that one day at the resurrection, that transformation will be made complete. We are continuously in the process of being made like Christ. So if that's our focus, if that's our goal, what is it then that we do? The following verse, therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm. Thus, in the Lord, my beloved. That we stand firm if we can if we can keep Christ in the center, not me, not the law, but Christ in the center, that he will empower us to stand firm. That's my prayer for us today. God, please, please give us your heart. Please give us the strength that we need to to pursue you, God. Give us the, an understanding of your love and that relationship that would motivate us to, to lay aside all the worthless things that we have put stock in God, and be transformed and know the peace and joy of being transformed into Christ so that we can love and serve and be your hands and feet here on earth. Thank you for your faithfulness, God. Please be with us this week. Amen.